Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes and sponsored by Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. This is episode 57 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Mary. A little bit of internet issues this morning, but hopefully we'll stay connected well enough to have another exciting episode of the PaxX Podcast. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this week's podcast. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark, tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit JetlinerCabins.com to learn more and to download the app. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Marianne Simpson has been active in the PaxX media world for nearly a decade. Before joining the Airline Passenger Experience Association as Apex Media Director, she served in a variety of editorial and PR positions, including as creative editor and then managing editor at PAX International Magazine. She also oversaw the conversion and update of the Bible for Aircraft Interiors, Jetliner Cabins, actually our sponsor, and transformed it into an interactive app. And she was one of the original contributors to Runway Girl Network, later serving as Director of Partnerships. Whew, Marianne, it's a lot. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great to have you. It's great to have you back, Marianne. And let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories making headlines. First, Apex Media has published a number of interviews from the Apex Multimedia Market, an annual event where the world's leading airlines choose the content lineup for their in-flight entertainment systems and thus for their passengers. This year's event was sold out. Marianne, I know a number of content trends emerged from the show. One of the hot topics was accessible entertainment, entertainment for the deaf, the hard of hearing, and those who are visually impaired. What were your biggest takeaways from the event at Paris? Um, yeah, I think, well, with regard to accessible content, I did do an interview with American Airlines, uh, the lady there who is in charge of buying all the media and the uh, IFE content for American Airlines, which is a huge job, as you can imagine, with all their different routes and different types of um, entertainment systems, different flight lengths and things like that. So they want to tailor the content, you know, to the length of the flight and uh, to the uh, to the demographic that's on board and whatnot. So they, you know, it stressed that they are on the hunt for more accessible content, in particular descriptive audio uh, movies. They said that they've got a whole channel for the descriptive audio films, but that this service is not really available yet so much for TV series, which is what people really like to watch, I think, on shorter flights. People won't commit to a film on, uh, on a, a one-hour flight for obvious reasons. Um, so they are really sort of beating the drum at the multimedia market looking for this sort of content. Um, I think because in the industry, you know, we've been hearing a lot about accessible IFE, for example, the project between uh, Blue Box and Virgin Atlantic, which won the Crystal Cabin Award and, you know, tons of positive media and accolades. But that only gets you so far. That helps the person with the visual impairment or the hearing impairment in some cases to navigate the system. But then they still need the content that they can enjoy. Uh, so that's sort of the second part of it. 
Yeah, that was a fascinating interview that you did with American Airlines, Marianne. And of course, uh, she not only touched upon uh, accessible entertainment, but also said that American Airlines would like to get to a point where they could stream early window movie content to passengers' own devices. And of course, Hollywood has traditionally not permitted that due to security and other concerns. Was there any talk at all about that becoming a reality uh, in the near term, or, or do you think that that's something that's still a little bit further out? I think the discussion has moved away from early window streaming more to um, browser-based DRM streaming. Uh, so the window is closing. Um, you'll hear a lot of people say in the industry, so that early window is getting shorter. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we're not going to get stuff that's fresh out of the theaters that can be streamed to devices. However, you will start seeing fresher and fresher content that is available for streaming. Uh, but I think the big conversation around DRM is browser-based DRM right now. And this is where a lot of the studios are sort of relaxing their rules or becoming beginning to trust the technology a little bit more, where passengers can now just sort of log on when they get on the flight and stream the content as opposed to needing to download an app before the flight, which has been a big hurdle to uptake in streaming IFE. So now the passenger doesn't have to do that step before they board. They can just get online, connect to the, you know, the closed Wi-Fi network on board and start streaming that content. So that's sort of where the conversation is, is really around right now. Interesting. Passengers are very excited about this um, because, as you say, that has been kind of the choke point and the reason why take-up hasn't been great because of this need in the past to download you know, the app in advance. So it is exciting to see that. And we're seeing it on social media where, where folks are saying, okay, this is finally moving to where it's going to be much more accessible for everyone. Um, Max, what are your thoughts about the kind of the content trends that are occurring right now? Well, I think it's interesting that there is a focus on regional content. You heard about investment in African content and in Indian content. I guess that's partly driven by the increased quality of that kind of regional content. Uh, Marianne, would you say that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hyper-localized content is sort of a buzzword that we're hearing now. Um, so it's kind of gone beyond even Bollywood uh, films to, you know, going down into specific regions within Indian content, for example. And as we know, the Indian market is set for major growth. Uh, and on top of that, there's a huge Indian diaspora. Uh, you know, there's massive populations of Indian people, people of Indian descent living in the UK, in Germany, in the US, in Canada. And these people love to watch the traditional Indian films. Um, but in India, they speak 22 languages. So now you're starting to see content in all of these languages. And another interesting thing with Indian content, uh, what some of the content providers uh, who were at Multimedia Market were discussing, was that the storylines are beginning to modernize a little bit. We're beginning to see things like um, female protagonists and, you know, addressing issues like single parenthood and uh, second marriages and stuff like this, which, uh, you know, these sort of themes would have never entered uh, that content market before. So that's opening it up to a much uh, broader global audience as well. Interesting. And the same thing in Africa, um, we're seeing outside of Nigeria, which is sort of like the Hollywood in Africa, that a lot of other regions are beginning to sort of produce their own little A-list celebrities, their own film festivals, their own streaming platforms that people are using as Netflix is not as pervasive there. So you're seeing some regional st streaming uh, platforms and yeah, just a big investment in regional content. 
Marianne, are we seeing more also destination sort of content as well? I mean, I, I recently um, oh, had experienced Tapir Portugal, and they have some kind of unique partnerships with the tourism board and whatnot, where they feature content about some of the exciting places to go in Portugal, and of course the the culinary uh, uh, attractions as well. Are you seeing more of that when you're at Multimedia Market? Um, to be fair, I didn't go and visit every single exhibitor, so I'm sure there was quite a bit of that on display. However, it wasn't a major theme that I took note of okay. um, in terms of sort of here's what you should do in Lisbon when you're visiting Lisbon. It's all a little bit broader again. So if they're going to make a show about Lisbon, they would be doing so, you know, trying to have a, almost an influencer involved or something like that. And it would be something they'd be selling to multiple airlines as opposed to, you know, where the airline is developing it to try and promote their own destinations. Okay. And just for the uninitiated, for those who are listening, this multimedia market is effectively like the place to go for buying content for your in-flight entertainment system, right? This is it. Uh, This is where the airlines come every year to buy their content. Uh, Can you just talk a little bit about the show itself? Like, what do you see and what happens? Are these meetings between the airlines and content creators? How's it all set up? Yeah, so it's a very niche um, show that is going strong after many years. Um, this year we had, I think, around 24, 25 airlines represented it, represented there and over 40 groups of buyers and uh, over 200 attendees. So basically it's set up over two days of meetings and it, it's on quite a tight meeting schedule of 20 minutes. Every t- 20 minutes you'll hear like an airplane sound taking off in the hall and the <laughs> buyers sort of do like a choo-choo train around the whole um, conference visiting with all the content producers. So there's two types of booths you can get if you want to exhibit at this show. One is an appointment booth, which gets you into that appointment schedule, and you're therefore guaranteed to basically meet every buyer group who's in attendance. So the value is really high. Um, And then there are also some non-appointment booths where you can exhibit at these booths and, you know, hope that a buyer sort of wanders by while they have a break. Uh, But this year, the appointment schedule was completely sold out. So there were, I think, 40 appointment slots. And that meant, yeah, any content producer who was there looking to get their content on board airlines would have had an opportunity to meet with every single group of buyers at the event. Hmm. And Marianne, do I understand that there's a a little bit of a change this year in the multimedia market format, I guess, uh, more of an emphasis or focus on the marketplace and a little bit less on the education sessions that had been uh, featured in the past? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Traditionally, there would be a third day to the market. So it usually takes place on a Monday, Tuesday with all the meetings. Tuesday night, we have a super popular sort of quiz night um, networking event. It's like a movie quiz and everybody just goes crazy for it. Uh, And then the Wednesday would be some educational sessions and speakers and panels and things like that. And this year, the association decided to not do the third day and focus their efforts instead on bringing in more airlines, more buyers um, and and sort of making the marketplace more robust. And uh, by all accounts, that was a massive success because we've had more people than the event has had in years. Um, And I think it was possibly the first time ever that all the appointment schedules were completely booked out. So I imagine that's a format that will continue to stay as it was this year. That's great. Well, next, Apex was once again prominently featured at the record-breaking Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg. The association helped to launch a new event called Passenger Technology Solutions and hosted a variety of sessions about transforming passenger data into personalized experiences. 
Marianne, you were on the show floor interviewing PaxEx industry stakeholders. In your opinion, what are some of the most exciting in-flight entertainment and connectivity topics that emerged from the Aircraft Interiors Expo? Um, I think from my perspective, the maturity of the, you know, sort of portable box streaming IFE concept is always interesting to see. Um, It's a market that I've been following sort of from the get-go when the first boxes started to appear on the market. And I think it's just interesting to see how many airline customers some of these portable um, portable streaming IFE providers now have. Uh, we saw Global Eagle Entertainment actually enter this sort of fray with the portable boxes, uh, with their own portable box as well. And then on top of that, I did notice that you're seeing the the content service providers. So people like Global Eagle do that, um, Spafax as well, who are sort of moving into a diversification, again, GEE with their box, um, Spafax with their IQ data analytics platform. And then you've got companies like Panasonic, for example, who were actually at the multimedia market sort of positioning themselves as a digital services provider. So trying to move away from the um, the hardware pigeonhole and moving almost a little bit into that content service provider space. So I think you're seeing all these people trying to diversify and become more turnkey solution providers uh, than they have been considered before. Yeah, that's a really interesting sort of pivot to observe, Marianne. Um, right in advance of the Aircraft Interiors Expo, I had the opportunity to interview AirFi, which of course is one of the portable Wi-Fi uh, box providers. And um, they, alongside actually Lufthansa Systems, which also has a portable, as you know, are kind of predicting a little bit of a shakeout on that part of the industry because they are seeing so many players trying to enter the space and that it's getting not unlike the in-flight connectivity side of the world, quite crowded. What about your thoughts on that? You have been tracking all of these portable guys for since the inception, as you say. What do you think is going to happen there? Yeah, I definitely think there are a lot of players on the scene. Um, frankly, I've been really surprised that we haven't seen any of these uh, more successful portable box solutions providers getting picked up by a Panasonic or a Talus or somebody like that. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to happen now because I think the portable box guys that are doing well are doing quite well on their own. I think um, they might want to continue that. I would say uh, Blue Box is is looking well positioned, especially with all the press around their, uh, again, the accessible IFE. Um, you know, AirFi's got dozens of customers and Imfly also just picked up uh, Pegasus Airlines, uh, which they announced at AIX which we'll see them on, and they're not a portable solution, I believe they're installed, but sort of still competing for the same type of uh, regional carriers. Uh, And the Pegasus contract will give them, I think, 76 aircraft uh, plus a bunch of new ones that are on order for a total of over 100 when they're fully rolled out. Um, So what's going to happen in, in that space? It's hard to say. Uh, But I do imagine that we'll continue to see these guys picking up airline customers and continuing to land bigger and bigger fleets. Part of uh, the allure, of course, of the portable, um, outside the fact that, you know, it's kind of cheap and cheerful and easy to execute, it also offers an opportunity for these airlines kind of as a a stopgap measure until they're ready to get that live in-flight connectivity, which is, of course, quite expensive still. Are you seeing the same in that some of these airlines are like, you know, look, we'll do this kind of 
cache content on board, stream on board. We don't need to have a live link right now. And it buys them some time before they have to make that big decision uh, to buy in-flight connectivity down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure some of the airlines are viewing it that way. The box does provide a great portal for when connectivity does get added to a fleet, if it does get added to a fleet. Um, Because I think if you just allow passengers to access connectivity without keeping them in some sort of walled garden, I hate to use that phrase because it's so (laughs) overused. But if you're using the box as um, the, the sort of the first point of contact or the point of access for the passenger to get at that connectivity, then you're still being able to keep them in your ecosystem, keep your content in the mix, keep your message in the mix and sort of um, control the way they're using the in-flight connectivity. Um, I think a lot of other airlines have no intention, at least in the near term, of connecting the aircraft if they've got a lot of very short routes um, then I think the box is probably more than enough. I was really fascinated by the Crystal Cabin Award winning idea, a water-saving faucet for galleries and labs, using some really interesting but well-developed technology. The Etom faucet? Yes, from uh, Cranfield's uh, group, used kind of a nebulizer sort of device, I guess, that they say will uh, reduce onboard water savings up to 90%. That's significant. Yeah, it sure is. I think Mary was on the judging panel there. She might know a bit more about that one, uh, how the technology yeah. works even. Yeah, I mean, I, I think just overall for our listeners, um, uh, and for those who, again, the un- uninitiated, the Crystal Cabin Awards has become kind of what's considered, you know, almost like the Oscars of the aircraft interiors industry in terms of celebrating innovation and awarding innovation. And every year, the submissions get more and more exciting and interesting. And the university submissions are just remarkable, The what's coming out of these university students. And, of course, uh, as, as Max says, um, one of the uh, innovations is uh, effectively a, a water-saving faucet that wowed the judges. I mean, we're talking about huge savings for faucets in both galleys and lavatories. So... Um, that's something we definitely want to talk about here coming up, Max, um, with labs. Aircraft labs are really having a moment <laughs> in, uh, in the aircraft cabin, um, you know, and, and we're really not talking about the modular labs that are on board uh, a lot of these narrow body aircrafts, but effectively the lavatory innovations that are being brought forward by aircraft interior specialists and, of course, these students. Mary Ann, one idea, uh, lab idea that we've talked about is the Jamco idea for a kind of a communal bathroom on board. Um, What are your thoughts about this? This is is interesting. We see it sometimes in Europe on the ground, of course, in restaurants and whatnot. There's efforts to try and bring it in flight. Yeah, so basically Jamco is the sole lavatory supplier for Boeing's wide-body aircraft, and they've come up with a concept that they see as a way to sort of reduce congestion in terms of, you know, the lineup that you get outside the lavatory after meals or after takeoff if you've been on the tarmac for a long time, for example, or right before landing when a lot of people want to freshen up. So people are sort of, you know, monopolizing the entire bathroom, but really they're just brushing their teeth and powdering their noses, things like that. So this concept basically is sort of like an open space with a communal sink area and some different stations with mirrors and then just sort of the toilet um, in several units, I guess. So the idea being that, you know, you go in there and and do your business, freeing up the space for another passenger to go in there, and then you get out of their way to wash your hands and and, uh, do your makeup, fix your hair, and things like that. 
Yeah, um, and I'm, this goes in the rear of the aircraft as well, which should reduce congestion in the aisles and allow the flight attendants to continue doing a meal service or push a trolley past or something like that. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. This does make a fair amount of sense because, of course, we don't always just go to the lab to use the lavatory. Sometimes we're there to freshen up right before we land, right? Do hair and makeup and everything else. And as a woman, um, now my and, and this also emerged in discussion during Crystal Cabin Awards. You know, would you have kind of a curtain that would protect the person who's doing their makeup and hair, so that you know everyone can't see? You know, you're brushing your teeth and everything else. I mean, I wonder if there's a way to make it a little bit more private um, or, or if that is necessary. Um, I'm Thoughts? actually looking at a figure of it right now. We've got an article about this in the um, upcoming issue, actually, of Apex Experience magazine. And I do see in this drawing a mirror that you can oh, pull around yourself while you're doing your makeup. So it's like a wraparound mirror. <laughs> yeah, it's on like a track. It looks like it's on a track that's attached to the ceiling. And you could kind of like pull the the curtain around behind you and then the mirror is lit so you still have the light inside oh cool max thoughts on the communal bathroom on board well i wonder about the the configuration the the space that it would take up in the airplane would that just replace existing or the existing space taken up by by labs or would you have to create a, a different kind of configuration to accommodate one large lav with these multiple stalls. I think with a lot of wide-body aircraft, what we're seeing now is the galley move to the back. Like the whole back section of the plane is a galley, and it looks like it's taking that area. So I think maybe what it would mean is moving the galley forward in the cabin a little bit and using that entire aft area as a, a big open sort of bathroom space with a giant sink in the middle and stalls and then some some counters, some cosmetic counters and things. Marianne, another idea on the lavatory front um, that, of course, was a submission also to Crystal Cabin Awards is uh, Zodiac's Duranol, um, where effectively, where effectively you would have um, just male-only urinal uh, labs, and then you could then dedicate perhaps um, one or two of the labs to to women only. The idea is that it would speed up the process, that the lines wouldn't be as long. But there was very, you know, avid discussion about this one. And, and one point that um, that I make is that if there is an open lav, whether it's got a urinal only in it or a full lav, if you got to go, you got to go. You're going to find a way. <laughs> so my question to you is, um, do you think that women would just be like, you know what? I'm just going to grab this. It's open. Would it really, how, I guess, how do you impart the message to passengers that this is for the, <laughs> these are urinals and these aren't, you know, how do you impart that message? That uh, That's the part that I guess is a big question mark. I don't know. I mean, I know some women who would go for it. I personally would not, but I definitely know some <laughs> who would. I mean, I, I do think it's clever. So essentially what they're doing is they're taking a regular 60 by 30 inch lav and they're separating it into two 30 by 30 inch urinals. So you are certainly increasing the, the throughput, <laughs> I guess, so to say. Um, uh, but I, I mean, you, you can't keep women out of it. I'm sure most yeah. ladies would not choose to go in there. Uh, but I, I love the terminology that they use in the, um, in the marketing. And uh, in, in our article specifically, we, we write, uh, besides decreasing the lavatory cycle time, Zodiac believes the knock-on effect of a reduction in, this is quote-unquote, male splash zone contamination in the <sighs> conventional toilet could improve the passenger experience for women. <laughs> 
Hey, you know, I mean, I, I, I'll always remember being on, gosh, was it a 13, 14 hour flight and, um, you know, in the back of the bus on a triple seven. And by the end of that flight, those floors were sloshy to say the least. So if you can make that a better situation, that sounds good. It's interestingly enough, there's an idea out of Boeing uh, that was also a submission to the Crystal Cabin Awards um, for a kind of a, a flooring that would uh, soak some of that up. Max, do you find this to be a problem when you fly? Uh, you're talking about the Boeing cabin dry floor, I take it? Correct, sir. Correct. I really like this idea and I would like to see this implemented in, oh, at least three quarters of the restaurants that I visit on a normal basis. <laughs> well, I, I, was, uh, I had the pleasure of sitting beside Boeing at the Crystal Cabin Awards and, and they intend to, to push forward with that. They think they're on to something, you know, really special here. And they, they said that they were going to look at really taking it to the next level, which is kind of exciting. Um, but Overall, of course, the trend in lavatories, especially on narrow-body aircraft, Marianne, have been the, the modular lavatories, and we're seeing really mixed responses. Well, let me just say fairly negative responses <laughs> um, from some of the passengers about them because they've gotten so small. And, of course, with the latest Boeing 737 Maxes, um, that's something that's being flagged regularly on social media. But it doesn't seem like that trend is going to... Uh, and it seems like we're in the modular lavatory sort of realm on narrow bodies. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I can't see lavatories getting any bigger on narrow body aircraft uh, in the near term. Uh, maybe we could use VR to remedy this problem <laughs> yeah. and convince people they are not in the lavatory that small. Yeah, here's your goggles before you jump in just so you can feel more spacious. The one thing that is going to come forward here soon, and this is um, work afoot. Of course, Apex has played a, a steering role in this as well. Um, this is where the DOT is going to issue proposed rulemaking concerning effectively uh, lavatories for the disabled on board narrow body aircraft this has been a major issue of course there's a lot of horror stories out there of of passengers having to even crawl on their arms down the aisle in order to get to the bathroom and there's all sorts of horror stories happening uh, on board aircraft with disabled passengers but accessible lavatories um, is definitely an issue that's been highlighted and I know Apex and other stakeholders in the industry have weighed in on this so we're expecting some rulemaking from the DOT at least here for the United States um, here in the not too distant future the latest guidance they provided was that we, we were going to see something here uh, in the near term so that could be good news and and maybe I guess the knock-on effect being that if that is required then we will ultimately have to see larger at least one larger lab on board these uh, narrow body aircraft um, but also and and this kind of takes us full circle also the accessible IFE issue is uh, is going to be addressed in this rulemaking as well um, <clears throat> to both uh, you know meet the needs of the hard of hearing and visually impaired and that I guess brings us back to effectively Marianne um, this is one of the reasons why there's also a big push also, I suppose, at multimedia market, because there is, there are regulations now that are coming down the road. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's really industry-wide. Yeah. Um, I think you and I have both been spending some time talking to, uh, you know, advocates in the, uh, you know, disability sector for disabled travelers. Um, there's such a huge number of people who have disposable income, who have the desire to travel, um, who just need things to be a little bit more easier for them. And 
thank God there are people are getting together and talking and working on solutions now. I know there are some design firms that are coming together. You've got guys like Chris Wood at Flying Disabled who mm-hmm. are beating the drum every day, coming together with lovely people like Geraldine Lundy from Virgin Atlantic. And uh, they're coming together and talking and, and their whole message is, hey, why don't we have an industry driven solution as opposed to waiting for the government to ram some legislation down our throat? And then we're all mm-hmm. scrambling to find makeshift solutions in order to meet some deadline. Like, why don't we push it forward and let it be our solution that we developed without being forced to do it? Right. Now, they would like to see, um, you know, for disabled passengers specifically, um, they would like to be able to remain in their own wheelchair and powered chairs um, and have a way of carving out a section for them to be able to sit in their own chairs on board aircraft. I have to say, when I was at Aircraft Interiors Expo, um, a couple of folks did say confidentially that they, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges, obviously, to that, and there were concerns about how that could be executed. But I don't think it's any challenges that can't be overcome. Um, but that is the big, the big push right now. And uh, myself and Max have also interviewed advocates for passengers of reduced mobility and the disabled. And, and it is interesting. There really is heightened um, awareness now about the needs of these passengers. And as you say, they have the income they want to travel, and they're meeting with all sorts of challenges and barriers. Max, do you take a position on that in terms of, uh, you, know, we, you know, we have accessible trains, we have accessible, you know, passengers, disabled passengers increasingly want to stay in their own wheelchairs. And they're also, of course, as we've talked to some folks say, that they arrive on the other side and their wheelchair is often damaged when it's been thrown into the hold. Thoughts? Yes. In fact, uh, we talked about this a little bit on this week's Airplane Geeks podcast. And in fact, the FAA reauthorization bill of 2018 that was just passed by the U.S. House includes some language on this. And they call or it calls for the FAA to study options for allowing wheelchairs to be secured in the cabin so that passengers who are wheelchair bound could uh, and who are not ambulatory could remain in their wheelchairs. And uh, this is something that I think uh, maybe there aren't huge numbers of travelers that would uh, benefit from this, but those that who are out there that uh, are not ambulatory, of course, have a real problem. Uh, you can be lifted into your seat, wheelchair goes down below, uh, but if you need to use the lav or you know anything else, need to get around for some other purpose, you're you're kind of stuck and it's a problem. So, I'm personally happy to see that the FAA is required to take a look at this. Uh, the reauthorization bill doesn't mandate any specific uh, solutions or any specific action, but it does, uh, if it is enacted as uh, it's stated now, would require the FAA to take a look at it and study it. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. Sorry, Marianne, just very quickly. I mean, they're also calling for a review of uh, regulations to see if they can more effectively assist passengers with disabilities on the ground as well. So it's like they really are trying to address all of this. Marianne, have you had a chance to take a look at this at all? The FAA mandate? Yes. The, well, sorry, the, the, House, uh, the House passed legislation that now, of course, it needs to be reconciled by the Senate and agreed. And ultimately, some of these provisions may never 
make it into the Senate bill. But as it stands right now, FAA reauthorization legislation would effectively call for a feasibility study of in-cabin wheelchair restraint systems. And, you know, of course, as you know, as we just said, they, a lot of travelers, disabled travelers want to stay in their own wheelchairs, but it would also call for a review of current regulations to see if there couldn't be better hands-on training for airline personnel on the ground helping uh, disabled passengers at the airport. It's one of them. Of course, there's also uh, others, uh, other provisions in this bill that are going to affect passengers if the Senate actually takes it up. We've, we've done a lot of work on this recently, and that is the, um, the language that would force the FAA to also set minimum standards for aircraft seating. So aircraft seat pitch and width and length, because lawmakers are uh, joining kind of consumer groups in their concern that, um, that passenger egress may be affected in the event of an emergency evacuation by these ultra-high-density seating configurations that have been certified. So it's a topic we're paying very close attention to. Um, I know that the industry is, or at least even industry observers, are rather split some don't want to see the industry regulated. They want to see the airlines kind of take up a lot of these issues on their own and not have, as you say, Marianne, regulations forced down their throats. But it does seem like lawmakers are really hyper aware now about some of these issues. Yeah, I can't say I'm familiar with what the FAA is doing, you know, being based in the UK now. But uh, I did learn from Chris Wood at Flying Disabled uh, when he was in our offices here a couple of weeks ago that the UK is uh, putting forth sort of similar things in uh, forward looking sort of aviation plans and asking people to look at this. But I think a, a big thing, like you mentioned, we have to think about the safety of the other passengers. So how does this affect the configuration or in the event of an emergency, you know, what is this sort of bringing a, a, a motorized wheelchair or something like that into the cabin mean for everybody else in the cabin for getting off in a timely manner and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then also the wheelchair manufacturers have got to get involved because, you know, our industry can spend as much time and energy as we want looking at ways to sort of strap the wheelchairs in and things like that. But if the wheelchair industry sort of meets us halfway and starts developing wheelchairs that, you know, are, are potentially even co-developing mechanisms where the wheelchair and the this, you know, part of the aircraft cabin are actually made to lock together and go together. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. Priestman Good has some good early concepts about how that might look. Um, not quite where the person is in their own wheelchair. It would still be effectively provided by the airline, but where there's where it would kind of lock in together. So I know they're doing a lot of work there as well. Um, so definitely something that we're kind of all paying attention to and, and covering. Unfortunately, we're rapidly coming to a close here. I'd like to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at RunwayGirl. And remember to use the PAC6 hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. It is a very active conversation these days. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, the Jetliner Cabins ebook app. And I'd like to thank Marianne for being our guest. Marianne, where can listeners find you at? Uh, you can find me specifically uh, on LinkedIn, Marianne Simpson, or on Twitter. My handle is at JetwayMJ, and you can visit www.apex.arrow to uh, read our online news, sign up for the newsletter, or just learn more about the Airline Passenger Experience Association. Wonderful. Marianne, always a pleasure. And we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Thank you.